0: Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 66th episode of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the English entertainer Tommy Steele, a singer and actor regarded as Britain's first teen idol and rock and roll star. He's also an outstanding sculptor, with his work exhibited around the world. This interview took place in London in nineteen ninety-four, when he was living near Richmond upon Thames, and we started by talking about how his glittering career began in the mid nineteen fifties.
1: Well, it started off at probably about eleven o'clock in the morning, like all my mornings start off. I get up about that time. I was in the navy at the time. I was nineteen, and uh, I was home on leave. I had a ten days' leave from a ship called the Mauritania, which was a great Cunard liner and I was the gym instructor on that ship. And what I used to do in my spare time on board was I played guitar, and I used to sing country songs. I was a great sort of uh, fan of a fellow called Hank Williams who wrote great songs like Jambalaya and Set the Woods on Fire, Cheat and And because I loved those songs so much, I taught myself to play the chords and to be able to sing the songs in the manner of of, of Hank Williams. And so there I was, I'd been playing guitar for about three years, I was 19, 11 o'clock in the morning, and I was off on my usual travels to the West End, because I used to go over there, and and I used to, on my leave, which was for 10 days, as I said, I used to like to go around the West End looking at the clothes, but more important, to go into these odd... Coffee bars that were opening then and playing my guitar. And I used to go to a place called the Bread Basket and another place called the guy and Gimbal. The guy and Gimbal was a charing class, the Bread Basket was a bit more upmarket market. It was uh, by Middlesex Hospital and it used to be full of nurses. And it was uh, for a 19 year old seaman <laughs> who played guitar and sang songs. A place where nurses frequented was very really good. So I was off on my usual way. And uh, now we're about three three o'clock in the afternoon and I went into the Bread Basket and I there for a plate of spaghetti and a and a poached egg and a cup of coffee, they, which they would give me to entice me to stay, I would sing a collection of Hank Williams and country songs. But at this time, on this trip, this particular day, there were other songs that I'd learned four days or five days before where I'd been in New York. And there was a song called um, Blue, Blue Suede Shoes, sung Carl by Perkins. a fellow called Carl Perkins. So I came into the bread basket singing my... Country songs, and a fella came up to me and he said, Oh, tonight, about half past eight, uh, there's a new one opening called The Two Eyes down in Old Compton Street and uh, it's going to be the place to go because coffee bars by this time were opening up all over the place and they weren't opening up as coffee bars all day most of them were like butcher shops, greengrocer shops bakers in the daytime mm-hmm. and then come the evening, as soon as darkness came all the bread and the, and the meat was taken off the shelves the Garcia machine was put up onto the counter and it was a coffee bar and they'd name it like the Heaven and Hell was really uh, uh, Kelly's Bakery in the afternoon You know, they just stuck up a picture of the devil and, uh, and, and an angel sitting outside and there you are so I thought, oh, I'll go, I'll go along to this new place. and went along to the Two Eyes with my guitar, with my, my tan and uh, my collection of country songs. And uh, I walked in and I could hear this music coming from downstairs, which was skiffle, which I hated. And they were playing the Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O kind of stuff. And I went downstairs and it was packed with all these kids. And also there were lots of flashlights going off, which was something very rare for a coffee bar. So I waited my turn, like you always did. You knew everyone that was playing. Someone would give me the nod. I was Tommy the Seaman. I'd get up onto the stage, and I thought, no, this place isn't ready for country. I'll I'll do a country song with a very emphasised second and fourth beat of the bar, which was Blue Sway Shoes, and I sung Blue Sway Shoes. I was only there for one number. I finished. channel to the chaps, who was the Vipers Skiffle Group. How did it go down? Fantastic. But then, by that time, it had been going down fantastic everywhere, mm. not just mm. by me, but I'd sung it on the ship for five days too. Mm. So I was used to them liking this rhythm, this mm. this new exciting. kind of exciting mm. sound. So I went upstairs to the Heaven and Hell, which was the baker shop next door, and I'd have a quiet copy before I got my bus home. And this fella came up, stood next to me, and he said, excuse me, he said, but my name's John Kennedy, I'm a photographer with the Daily Sketch. He said... Um, all the photographers downstairs have just have been taking pictures of everybody, but they're all interested in the photos they've taken of you. Who are you? So I said, I'm Tommy Hicks. I'm, what do you do? I said, I'm a sailor. So he said, uh, what's that music you was playing down there? So I said, it's called Rock. And he said, uh, where'd you get it from? So I said, uh, I wrote it. <laughs> I did, of course. You got any more like that? So I said, yeah. So he said, well, uh, I'll meet you here tomorrow. So I said, well, why? So he said... Uh, well, he said, how would you like to go into show business? I said, uh, look, I said, I'm on leave. I said, I've only got 10 days. If you can get me a job in 10 days, I'll stop going to sea. Was that what you wanted anyway, do you think? Is I don't you know. I don't know. It was all a bit of fun. Mm. I think, go yeah, when you're 19, you don't really mm. want anything. You just want mm. tomorrow to come, don't you? Mm. Or today, not to stop. And um, the, next, the following day, I, he came along with this chap from Decker called Hugh Mendel. And the next day, there was an agent called Ian Bevan. And the next day I went into Decca Studios and recorded two songs, Rock With The Caveman and uh, Rock Around The Town, which I wrote. Lionel Bart wrote the
2: other one. Yeah, it? It, was
1: in the top, it was in the top five the following Monday, and I quit going to sea. So that was a day I'll never forget.
2: <laughs> I bet you're glad that day happened then rather than these days. Do you think it would have been more difficult to break through these days?
1: I don't know. Uh, the trouble with it, was, it would have been difficult to break through even the week after. Because there were no precedents, and mine was the precedent, yeah, so therefore anybody that came along after me would have been referred to me, so therefore it might have been more difficult. Mm. Uh, do you do what he does? Mm. Uh, do you look like he does? Uh, do you do that You know what I mean mm. Mm. Um, you've got to bear in mind that uh, it wasn 't until two or three years later that Cliff came along, uh, and before him was Adam, Neither mm. of them were guitarists, you know it was always in, standing in front of a band mm. singing.
2: And for you to, you had nothing to look on as an example for how to deal with stardom. That's and it's what I mean. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah.
1: But I think in my case it worked because no precedence. Yeah. Absolutely. In in everybody else's case, mm. right up to today, mm. you're always going to refer back to the Beatles or mm. the Rolling Stones or the Who or Queen. If mm. you're a group, if you're a mm. single singer, you know, are you going to be Springsteen? You know, it's people are always going to say, yeah, but is he another? With me, it mm. was, he's not another anybody, so I, I was lucky, and for me it was easier. Mm. What was fan worship l-
2: like to deal with when you nobody had even heard of it before?
1: No, apart from the Bobby Soxers with Frank Sinatra. Right. And then came the fan worship of, of Presley, mm. which then came over to for the fan worship with me. I didn't enjoy it at all. Did you not? No, I, I found that it got in the way of my art. Right, I see. You, mean you were more, more interested in your music than being a star. I used to come onto the stage to Constant Screams, which lasted the whole 25 minutes yeah. of the act. And uh, it was all right for the first couple of months, and then after a while I really... I couldn't even say good evening. And I, I really wanted to. It's not that I didn't appreciate them. I wanted to talk to them. Mm. I wanted to say, How are you? Mm. Uh, I wanted to say things to them. I wanted to, for them to hear the lyrics. I wanted them to hear the music. Is that why you changed direction in your career? It's the only reason why. I, I went into a pantomime at Liverpool, which was in my second year, and by then I was get, I, I was tottering on the edge of getting really fed up with it. And then I came on stage in that pantomime, and they wouldn't listen to the dialogue. And I turned to the audience on the opening night, and I said, unless you, you shut up, no, yes, you shut your gobs was the actual word I used.
2: Because <laughs> you had to do it in a humorous way, presumably. Yeah, I said, but unless yeah. you
1: shut your gobs, I said, we're all going home. And they stopped like mm. right that and they listened to the whole. Because I felt embarrassed with the other actors. Mm. It was all right for me, I'm used to it. You know, mm. I can turn a deaf ear and just can continue, although mm. I don't want to. But the other actors were absolutely shocked. You know, they were mm. all kind of go, what heavens, you You know. So I had to quiet them down for them. But then I got the taste. I got the taste of a. Of a quiet theatre, the ta- and then came the next problem. If they're quiet and attentive, what have you got to say to us? Mm. And I suddenly found the songs I was singing uh, were not really that attentive. Uh, there wasn't a lot of lyric really to get over to them. The, the tune wasn't that great. So I thought to myself, here I am wishing for an audience to be quiet and attentive, and now they are. I've got to bugger all what to do to them. And by that time, the pantomime had moved me off towards mm. musicals where I wanted to do the singing and the dance and the acting.
2: How quickly did your life become changed completely from being a, literally an ordinary seaman to um, to a big star? I mean, how quickly did it all change and in what fashion did it change? Well, it, it
1: changed within days. Uh, I stayed at home in Bermondsey with my parents for, mm. for the first two years and then we all moved to Catford. Because everyone found out where you lived? No, it's because I wanted my parents to have a nice house. So we moved to Catford. I mean, I didn't move them to Catford and mm. then moved to somewhere else I moved with them and I stayed there in Catford with them until I got married but you you find changes in your lifestyle they don't come that quick Uh, it doesn't happen like uh, Jekyll and Hyde like Mm. you go boom, boom it happens slowly um the 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 when you to acquire wealth in this business is a fallacy it doesn't come boom you you are comfortable over a period of years and you find that when you want to to move from another car to another car or another house to another house it depends on your character but my character is to do things very slowly because Mm. if I'm happy with what I'm doing or where I am or where I'm living I don't leave it and so my transition from a seaman to a performer uh, was quick but my transition from Tommy Hicks to Tommy Steele was very slow Can you give me some examples of
2: the more extreme examples of fan worship that you experienced when you first started? What sort of Uh, things did the fans do?
1: Well, they did what fans went on to do ever since after that, get in the way. (laughs) Um, But did they, like, turn up at your house and things like that? Oh, yes, but that's getting in the way. I mean, they drive you mad. Mm. Um, Screaming and shouting, this one thing, okay, adoration, that's fine. Coming to your house all the time. It was never unkind. They were never unkind. Rarely rude, but very possessive. And the possessiveness of them sometimes got on my nerves. But one thing I never forgave them for is making the noise in the audience. Mm. But no-one ever came up to me. I mean, the, the worst thing physically that ever happened to me was at, at Caird Hall Dundee in 1958 when I was dragged off the stage, which was the fault, really, of the uh, the promoter. And what he did... Was that um, in order to get a few more seats sold, he put them on the stage behind me as well mm. as outside, out in front. So when I walked onto the stage, there was about three and a half, four thousand people in the auditorium, me on the stage with another four hundred sitting behind in the choir seats where the choir would sit with an mm. orchestra, and sat so, naturally, I was sandwiched. And they just came back and from the back and from the mm. front, and I woke up in Edinburgh. That was terrible. What had happened in the meantime? I've no idea. I know I got torn. (laughs) I, I had my left arm was torn out of its socket. Oh dear! I had scratches and tears. Um so that was just hysteria. Yeah. You, you, you can't you, you only blame a mob for that. You mm. can't blame individual people for that.
2: Presumably some of your fans have stayed with you all these years.
1: Can you, oh, uh, most of them uh, have. Are there any, do you know them personally? Or? Oh, I know loads of them personally. Mm. And they were the screamers, and they know what I feel about it. Mm. And they don't scream anymore. They can't walk anymore. <laughs> <are they>? oh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but do you have a correspondence with them? Or is that yes, no, there's a called?
1: Tommy Steele club. Right. It's got thousands in it. And I get a, a weekly, a, a bi-weekly edition of a magazine that comes mm. out with all the photographs and, and reviews and, mm. write, uh, and articles that have been written over, over nearly 40 years. And what percentage of your fans are female and have been female? Probably about 70, mm. 60 or 70. More than more men in my group than, they, than you would imagine. So did you find the men getting quite envious when you first became a yeah, huge oh, Gosh, Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, that was really... Again, not nothing that I was privy to on my own. Mm. Um, I was never, ever threatened, um, never, ever came face-to-face with it. But you would see it in the audience mm-hmm. where the fellas would sit there with their arms folded and the girls mm-hmm. next to them going mad. And mm-hmm. then you gradually found that the next time you came back to that city the following year that the girls would be there, but the fellas just wouldn't bother. It wasn't for them. It wasn't until the second generation of fan came along, people that had grown up with things like Little White Ball that I would walk onto the stage by now, I'm a song and dance performer, working to the mothers and fathers that were the teenagers with the youngsters, 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds that were toddlers that had that come through the Little White Ball stages. Mm. And so now the audience became a family audience mm. because of my children's kind of music. Mm. Then with Hans Anderson, which was another great two or three years in a decade came another whole audience Mm. so therefore you went from the teenager that became the parent that became the grandparent You came the child that became the toddler that became Mm. the teenager that became Mm. the parent and then the cycle starts again Mm. and so your fan club or your starts to when it starts to go through the years has more men added to Mm. it because they're not Mm. Thinking of the teenager yeah. rock and roll type, they remember the the, the singing in the rains and the mm. Harper sixpences and the Hans Andersons. When you did break through, though, did you have a girlfriend at the time when you were the, the sailor that became a no. star? No, I'd had girls, mm. but oh, I had no, no steady girlfriend. Mm. My first steady girlfriend was eventually became
2: a wife. Right, so there was no great changes you made in your life because of no. the change. No, oh. no nothing necessary no, to do that. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> but you've always kept this incredible feet on the ground. Attitude to everything. Why was that? why is that? Is that because of your upbringing and your parents and everything? I think like it's that? got a lot
1: to do with your parents. It's got a lot to do with your point of view and your and your peace of mind and your way of life and your outlook, which comes from your youth. I think there's a lot to be said about the uh, the old Jesuit saying about "Give me a boy till he be seven, I'll give you the man." Mm. I think it's quite true. I had great parents, very understanding parents, very down-to-earth parents. Mm. I also came through a war, and um, as a child, when you come through a war of Going to bed, knowing that you're going to get up again in the middle of the night because mm. someone's going to try and kill you. I don't know, that must have something to do. Rationing must have a lot to do with it. I still hoard. Uh, my wife, people laugh. But I, I'm a hoarder. I'll I'll always have two bottles of milk in the fridge. I'll always have an extra packet of sugar. Mm. I'll always have an extra pat of butter somewhere. I still, I've still got four bottles of camp coffee that I still use <laughs> and keep four bottles topped up. I'm a hoarder, which I suppose when you go for hoarding, you go say, okay, then what does that go to? Saving, being careful, uh, not being extravagant. It's another thing your parents taught you, presumably, yeah. But but life teaches you that, Mm. you know, Mm. and I am a a careful, non-extravagant song-and-dance man that enjoys Mm. my family life and, Mm. and just loves my work. You say this overnight
2: change in your life came as something of a surprise you never really contemplated it before but when you
1: were a child did you ever dream or hope that you would become a star of some kind of no, performer not a star no no uh, you dream well i mean my first dreams as, as a young man was that i could fly <laughs> uh, i do that in my show um, i talk to the parents about the kids i've just sung little white Ball, and i've just done the kings New clothes mm. with the full company of people in comedy variety costumes And I say to the audience, you know, I love singing that song in live theatres, purely because of the children. And uh, I start to talk to them about their children, and Mm. those children that are in the audience, Mm. and and about, do you encourage them if they want to fly? Uh, Because so many parents say to a child that wants to fly, you know, you mustn't, you've got to get those silly dreams out of your Mm. head, you've got to start thinking about the humdrum things Mm. of life, you know, getting married and mortgages and work and all that sort of thing. And I think that we dampen the children's imaginations too mm. quick. You can tend to. And so you... I encouraged the, the audience that you mustn't dampen their yeah. imagination. Mm. And as a child, I imagined all sorts of things. Never stardom and never being on stage. Mm. My imaginations were up in the clouds somewhere. It was flying.
2: But you liked the singing because you did that as a sailor. So what was it that got you doing that? Did you, was it your first experience of rock and roll music? or What was it that made you want to sing?
1: The thing, I wanted it? to make the sounds I wanted right. to be able to first of all I heard Hank Williams songs and I loved yep. them and I wanted to sing them and you can't sing a Hank Williams song to a piano mm. at least you can't to a, a, pia- a pub piano mm. on the ship so I got a guitarist that played the chords for me and I sang it with him and then one day I bought a guitar and said could you show me those chords mm. and so I started to play for myself then I changed ships and I arrived on a new ship with a guitar that I could play that I could sing and the repertoire was building up, and I was singing in in ships concerts, and I was quite happy with my lot. I was mm. I'd have been satisfied to stay with that the rest of my life. I didn't see myself going ashore mm. and singing in theatres. I didn't see that at all. I didn't want that. It's I old. didn't even think it would be there because I always assumed that if you was going to go in the theatre, you was born in a trunk somewhere, and you came out mm. when you was two. You went on the stage, you got a standing ovation, and the next day you was Mickey Rooney.
2: Mm. You know. You haven't changed
1: physically hardly at all since you first
2: started. Shall I tell me? (laughs) Do you feel that way yourself? Do you feel as fit as you? I feel wonderful,
1: yeah. Yeah. What what, what do you do to keep yourself fit? I play squash every day.
2: The
0: second part of my 1994 interview with Tommy Steele took place over the phone, when he reflected on the fact that he'd started out as a pioneering pop star four decades previously.
3: It's only two years away and it's 40 years ago. You know, I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it, how time flies? If someone had said to me when I was 20, or 40 years ago, I remember, I'd think, oh, bloody hell, you know, don't take me back that far, it's too far back. You know, it's the arc.
2: But, I mean, in the meantime, obviously, you've done a great deal. Does it feel like you've done everything you want to do in that time?
3: Oh, no, in that time, yes. I mean, now I I just wish I had as much time again. Right. Go over it all, get get it better this time.
2: Do you have your sculpting studio in the house?
3: No, I sculpted in the garden.
2: You've got your own statue outside the front.
3: It's, it's a statue of Chaplin. I didn't do it for my house. I, I did it because I, I wanted to do it. It just ended up at my house. Right. It's very rarely there, though. It mostly goes around, it's on exhibition all the time in some country or other.
2: This is the house you're in now? Yeah. Right. And I've well, been there
3: 24 years.
2: How did you find that? What's the story of that one?
3: It's a, it's a Stuart mansion. 1640. It was a house that we always knew because I used to pass by it on the way to London.
2: Who was living in it then?
3: Uh, a fellow called Philip Carr, who owned Pete Freen's Biscuits, of all things. Because
2: it's got sort of stables with it, hasn't it?
3: Yes. Do and you cross t- court.
2: Do you mind the fact that every everyone knows your house when they go by? Everyone always points it out. Wherever no, they...
3: It's quite funny, really, especially in the summer when the coaches go by. If we're on one of the second floors and we're looking out and a coach goes by, it's always fun to say, when well, no, they watch this. And as he goes round the bend, everyone's head turns around because the fellow on the microphone has said, and on the right... <laughs> You know, it's fucking to see all these Japanese heads swing round, you know.
2: How much time do you spend at home and what do you like to do when you are at home?
3: I do what everybody else does. My feet up, I have my tea, and watch EastEnders.
2: <laughs> do you ever watch yourself? Do you watch your old movies and things?
3: No, I've, I've got them. But you never watch them? No.
2: Have you never been tempted to, to move to America?
3: No, I spend quite a lot of time in America. But it's a country that you know, I like to be in transit. It's a lovely country. They're it's a wonder, wonderful people. And they've got some wonderful things there, but um, I'm an Englishman. I prefer to live here.
2: How do you feel about the way London um, and England has changed over the years since you remember your childhood?
3: Uh, London, if you go by London as people see London, is become very cosmopolitan. Uh, you, if you, even if you just go by the restaurants and the shops, and I think it's wonderful. I think the it it's, it, it has the buzz of Paris now without the French. Do thank you God. Not-
2: <coughs> Do you miss um, the old days and, and the, the way life was when you were a youngster growing up?
3: No, but I can look back at them with, with a smile. Uh, I get as much of a charge out of, uh, I don't know, hitting a squash ball as I ever got out of kicking a football. H-
2: how easy is it for you to go around uh, wherever, Richmond or wherever, with, 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 without being recognised? Or do you just not go out very much?
3: No, I go out quite often. I don't particularly look out for it. It happens and, and it always happens nicely.
2: Do you enjoy um, the fame or sometimes do you wish... The... Of course I do, it's wonderful. I never, a... I
3: never wish anything else.
2: When, when people see you, what sort of things do they remind you of when they come up and see you? Do they talk about half a sixpence or it's, what? It's
3: surprising, it could be a load of different things. They come up and talk to you. The, the main thing is they come up and talk to you, it's charming. But they could talk about anything. I've had people come up and start telling me they're having problems with their kids, you know. <laughs>
2: And what do you say about that? Well,
3: I listen to the story, and if I can help in any way, I'll talk about my own. Mm -hmm.
2: Do you have uh, many friends in the entertainment business?
3: I have a lot of acquaintances.
2: Who are your closer ones? Uh,
3: Not people I would care to mention.
2: Of your uh, sculptures and things, are there any future ones planned? You've just done a marvellous one at Twickenham. Yes, I'm
3: just working on one that I'd like to discuss with Battle, with Hastings
2: the bio tapestry come to England that's right
3: I'd like to do uh, a, an effigy in battle itself in the village
2: how long does it take you
3: depends on what the subject is
2: how long did Charlie Chaplin take you for instance
3: uh, I did that in about six weeks
2: what about souvenirs of your career do you have quite a lot of those at home
3: oh loads yeah
2: I mean are they sort of on the walls and things or do you just keep them tucked away in a cupboard well somewhere? The
3: photographs are on the walls but the awards are all away behind glass you know
2: is there a favourite
3: uh, no. Uh, they've all got great memories of their own.
2: What, what would you say is the greatest tribute you've ever been paid?
3: Oh, it has to be the OBE, yeah.
2: Uh, and what have you done with your OBE?
3: What, the actual OBE itself? Yeah, That's yeah. behind glass.
2: What's the most memorable things critics have said about you?
3: Oh, gosh, there's been so many. Uh, I should imagine that the greatest criticism I ever got was from probably the greatest critic of all, which is Howard Hobson who gave me a credit in the Sunday Times, which I think probably started my career off in the theatre better than anything else could have.
2: And what did he say? Oh,
3: it's too long a, cr- a, right. a thing, but it was, it was a glowing page. It, it gave me a great accolade. It was it was wonderful.
2: Do you think you've been given the credit th- that you deserve in your career?
3: Oh, I should think more than that, Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm a job in Song and Dance, man. When you get accolades and and awards and credits and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's, 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 an added, it's an added sort of luxury. It's, it's a pleasure enough to do the work without getting a pat on the back for it. What
0: are you most proud of? All of it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tommy Steele. If you'd like to comment on this or any other interviews from the PJ Archive, you can find me, Peter Jonathan Robertson, on Twitter at Peter Jonathan R2.